Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 15 to verse 23. Paul's writing, and he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We're on the third message of a, of a series on Ephesians that actually started uh, in, in Acts. In Acts chapter 19, we looked at what happened when Paul went to Ephesus and the Holy Spirit showed up and we saw that there was transformation all over the place. Transformation in the synagogue when people heard Paul teach. Transformation among those who had practiced witchcraft who then burnt their books. Transformation among those who practiced idolatry who then no longer wanted to buy idols from the silversmiths. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, the first half of the chapter, we did that a couple of weeks ago, I made the, or asked the question, what drives you? We're, we're buzzing here big time. What is, what is, is there a buzz? <laughs> Can you deal with a buzz or not? Sorry. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, the buzz. Um, what drives you? What's the steam in your engine? We talked about how the steam in Paul's engine that, that expanded and drove his life forward was the fact that he knew he was chosen. He knew he was adopted. He knew he was redeemed, he had been enlightened, and he was sealed by the Holy Spirit. And these were the amazing blessings that he dwelt on that drove him forward in his life. We sometimes think of blessing as little small things, something going well as a blessing, but Paul has his eyes fixed on these massive things. So that's the, that's the story so far in Ephesians. Today I want to look at prayer and power in verses 15 to 23. Um, one of the great things about Paul is that he writes his prayers down. And we can learn a lot about how to pray by reading Paul. Sometimes you want to pray for someone and you don't really know how to pray. And you end up just saying, you know, Lord bless them and give them a good day. And that's about the height of it. Uh, you don't really know what else to do. But, God, but Paul gives us some tips and some hints in terms of how we should pray for others. Prayer is at the absolute heart of this man. 
And I would say in the life of anyone, any Christian, prayer has got to be the heart of it. And I think that ramps up all the more if you're in any leadership position. That you've got to guard your time that it does not become so completely choked by busyness that you don't have time to shut yourself away in prayer. So we're going to look at how Paul prays and try and see if we can get a few tips about how we should pray. And then we're going to focus in at the end on power. Look at how Paul starts his prayer. He says in, uh, in verse 15, Since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Little tip when you're praying for people. Start by giving thanks. Find something <laughs> to give thanks for. No matter who it is, if it is a human being made in the image of God, you will find something. Now, hopefully it will not take you that long. <laughs> but I, re- I think if you if you're want to find a wee bit of gold in someone, you can find it easily enough. So start by giving thanks. Give thanks for their faith. Give thanks for their character. Give thanks for their, their kindness. Give Whatever it may be, start by giving thanks for them. And Paul does this in... All of his letters, nearly all. He misses it out in one letter when he goes after the Galatians hard. But all the other letters, he he gives thanks. Even Corinth. Now, in the city of Corinth, the church was a mess. There was mischief going on in the church that you would hardly even name on a Sunday morning. And yet, Paul still starts his letter to the Corinthians saying, I always thank my God for you. Now, would we do that? (laughs) If we were looking after a bunch of people like this, honestly, their, their shenanigans were, were beyond the pale. 18 plus, 21 plus, just ridiculous what these guys were up to. And Paul still starts off saying, I give thanks for you. Do you have that disposition in life that you will find something to give thanks for in other people? Because that's how Paul starts his prayer. He says, I give thanks for your faith in the Lord Jesus. And I give thanks for your love for all the saints. Not your love for a select few of the saints that you get on particularly well with, but all of them. Your love for the whole people of God. Remember, as we we mentioned uh, the last time, that word saints, don't think some sort of venerated holy person. Everyone is a saint. Everyone in Christ is a saint. You're saints this morning. This is just a word that Paul uses for God's people. Paul has that ability to find gold and to celebrate it. And I would encourage you, when you're praying for people, I would encourage you to have a list. You know, the vast majority of you, you see this place as your home community in Christ. Write down their names in a little book, divide it by seven, and and pick three or four names a day and pray for them. And start off giving thanks for the good things that you can see in their lives. Second thing that I'll I'll learn about Paul's prayer is who to pray to. Sometimes there's discussion and debate about this, and I don't really think it's necessary. Um, Some people would say you can only direct your prayers to God, the Father. And I'm not going to dwell on this long. Most prayer in the New Testament is directed to God, the Father. Most of it, but not all of it. Paul prays to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 12 to take away the thorn in his flesh. Whatever that thing was. He, he, he prays to Jesus and he hears from Jesus. So 
it is not wrong to pray to Jesus, okay? And prayer to the Holy Spirit, although again, I think prayer to the Father is, is sort of the majority of our prayer is directed to him. I don't think it's wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's wrong to go to the Holy Spirit and say, you know, I want the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to empower me. I want you to fill me. I want you to equip me to live well and to love others. I don't think it's wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's wrong to stand and worship as we're singing and, and maybe in quiet moments say, Holy Spirit, come. I don't think you're sinning by addressing your prayer to the Holy Spirit. He is God as well. So I think the bulk of our praying is to the Father. But please don't think that if you've addressed a prayer to Jesus or to the Spirit, that somehow God then puts his hands over his ears and refuses to listen because you've committed a theological faux pas. You have not. And the Trinity is at work in, um, in that verse. Where is it? There it is there. Whenever we pray, even if we direct our prayers towards one of them, they're all at work. Paul prays and he says, I keep asking that the God... Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, may give you the Spirit. You can't separate them. They come as a package. The church in Northern Ireland has separated them and created its own trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. But that's not the trinity. The trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you can't separate them from each other. And in Paul's praying, even as he goes to God, Jesus is all over it and the Spirit is all over it as well. He is Trinitarian in how he prays. And why do we need the Spirit? Paul wants us to have the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now... If you could remember the first week, or not the first week, but the, the, the first section of this chapter a couple of weeks ago, it was heavy going. It was high speed. Paul crammed an awful lot in, and you might remember that it was one sentence in the Greek language. In your Bible from verse 3 to verse 14 is all one unbroken sentence. No punctuation, no capital letters, you know. And it's almost as if after verse 14, Paul takes a breath and says, Boys, oh, that was a lot. I better pray now that they'll get it. (laughs) He gives them this blast of truth about what God has done in Christ. And he wants them to understand it. He wants them to go deeper. It is very easy as a Christian to go for a short while on emotion, on the strength of a good meeting, on the strength of a good time of worship, a good sermon, whatever. You may find yourself able to to run on the power of that for a while, but Paul says, no, we don't want to just bounce from one spiritual high to another and dip down into the valleys in between. Paul wants a depth in our experience of God. And that's what he's praying for for these people. And note, please, that he's not praying that they would have some new blessing. He's praying that they would be able to grasp what they've already got as we look through this passage. He's not asking for God to do something that he hasn't already done. He's praying that people would understand what God has already done. And we'll see a wee bit later how, how what Christ has achieved is the, is the completion of what God wants to do in and through his people. 
Sometimes in school we talk about learning styles. You heard of learning styles? Just utter, you know, rubbish. There, you know, people talk about some learners who learn by hearing and others who will learn better by seeing. There is not one human being on this planet who will not learn better if they see and experience something rather than just hearing about it. I have actually had kids come to me and say, Sir, I don't really understand that because uh, I'm a visual learner and you taught that by speaking and therefore I don't get it. You know, sort of like, this is my excuse for not understanding. But I believe if you see something and you experience it, you will remember it. So whenever I'm telling kids about... uh, the reaction of magnesium and potassium chloride, I can tell them about it or I can show it to them. And if I show it to them, they will remember it far better because it's quite memorable. It's on the screen and it's a, there it goes. iPhone can't handle it. So this was, this was on Thursday in my room, just a wee bit of completely needless entertainment uh, for the kids. But if, if they see something, they'll get it. If they experience it themselves, they will not forget it. If I just tell them about it, there's a good chance that it will go out their ear as soon as they go out the door. And Paul is doing this with the Ephesians. He has told them an awful... You're getting distracted. He has told them (laughs) an awful lot in the first 14 verses of chapter 1. He's told them a lot. And now what he's going to pray is, God, will you come and make it real to them? It's not, sometimes we talk about our faith all being in our head and we say that we, want, that we need people to get their faith from their head down into their heart. I think Paul would say, I want it to go right down to your feet. I want you to understand these things and live in them and experience them, not just hear about them. And he's going to pray now that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of wisdom. That's capital S spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. In order that we would know how to live. Wisdom is knowing how to live. Revelation is understanding things that we otherwise would not understand. And Paul says that's a work of the Holy Spirit. I am from a background that fully embraces the power of the Spirit. For all of Christian life. But I find sometimes in that background, there is a a reduction of the role of the Holy Spirit. That he does these few things and we talk about them an awful lot. That he gives these gifts and we talk about them an awful lot. And he does those things. But my understanding of the Holy Spirit hopefully is shaped by Paul's understanding and it's big. And for me, the Holy Spirit is not just here in order that we can do certain things. He is here so we can understand who we are. And he is here in order to empower us how to live. And Paul's priority as he prays this prayer, he says in verse 18, of all the things that he could ask for, the thing that he prays for is that they would know God better. You start your praying for people, I advise you start by giving thanks. Somewhere in that prayer, If you're praying for me this week, somewhere in that prayer, pray that I would know him better. That's Paul's heart. Before anything else, before you go on mission, before you try to reach people, before you go to work, that you would know God 
better. Here's a great quote from a great book. Who recognizes it? One. <laughs> That's not the Mr. Man, no. That's a Christmas carol. Yeah. That's uh, this lad in, the, in a Christmas carol in Dickens' great book. And uh, Scrooge is visited by these three spirits. One of them is the ghost of Christmas past that brings a sense of regret of all of the things that he could have had and he did have at one stage, but he's now lost. And the, the ghost of Christmas future shows him a bleak future that lies ahead of him if he does not change. But in the middle, there's this jolly fellow called the ghost of Christmas present who is just bursting with life. And he invites him into this room that's full of food and full of light and warmth. And he laughs and laughs. The spirit's just laughing and joyful all the time. And he has this wonderful phrase that he says, Come in and know me better, man. And I think Dickens has taken that straight out of Paul. And I think that that spirit is modeled, that ghost is modeled on Jesus. He invites in the present, he gives Scrooge this invitation. He says, Come in and know me better. Come in and taste of all of the bounty that I have. Come into the light, come into the warmth and know me better. That's what Paul prays for people, that they would know God better. Do you ever think you get to a point where you know all there is to know? Do you think, you know, those of you that are a little bit younger, do you think that at some stage as a Christian you hit a point at some particular age and stage in the journey when you've got it all sussed? Because you don't. You don't. You're always learning more about him. You're always getting to know him better. And if a point comes where that yearning to know him better has diminished, there's trouble. There's trouble. There should always be a desire for more. Constant journey of of exploration and discovery of who God is and what he is like. Our short lives and our finite minds simply cannot grasp all that there is of God. I used to marvel, you know, when reading books and find that some particular Bible scholar was a Pauline scholar or a Johannine scholar, which meant he only studied John, really. He studied the whole Bible, but his specialty was John. And I used to marvel how somebody could spend their whole academic, professional life in one small part of the Bible. But you can never plumb the depths of it. You can never plumb the depths of it. You never get to a point that you know God as well as you're going to know him, and there's no more to know. But what does Paul want us to know? Because he elaborates a wee bit in terms of what he wants us to know in these verses. There are three things in particular that he wants us to know. He wants us to know the hope to which God has called us in verse 18. I read a thing this week that just made me sad. It was, it was uh, just a little note um, about a person who had passed away uh, at quite a young age. And it, it said about this person that at, at the age of 31, she lost her future to this particular disease. And I thought that's an unfortunate way to word it, that she lost her future. I want to tell you, if you follow Jesus, you can never lose your future. We have a hope that nothing can take away. 
no disease, no experience, nothing can take it away. It is a hope of, of what God has called us to and what he has for us in the future. And it is a hope that is certain because of what he has done in the past. Because of what Christ did on the cross, our hope is a certain hope. It's not a, well, I hope this will happen. It is a hope that is certain and secure because it is rooted in what God already has done. Paul wants you to know that. He prays that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom, filled with revelation, so that you would know the hope to which God has called you. He also prays that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Peter talks in his first letter about an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Again, I don't think our minds could grasp what lies ahead. What God has for us. It's not pie in the sky by and by. It's not floating off and living on the clouds and strumming a harp all day. It is heaven and earth brought together under Christ. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 1 that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Everything restored. The new Jerusalem you know, comes down from heaven. Heaven and earth are one. The whole universe becomes the temple. It's glorious. And you look outside a morning like that. I went outside to feed the birds. Don't forget the birds on the frosty mornings. I went outside and went down the garden and I was in a bit of a rush. And I filled the bird feeders and I was sort of walking back up the garden and I just stopped. And I looked at the color of the leaves and I looked at the sky and I breathed in the cold air. And I thought, if this is how good it is now, what must it be like whenever everything is restored and heaven and earth are one under King Jesus? Paul prays that we would be filled with the Spirit, that we would know and understand what lies ahead. And he also prays that we would know his, un, his incomparably great power for us in the present. Ephesus was a place of power. It was a place where there was the power of the Roman emperor. There was the power of Artemis or Diana, the goddess that many people worshipped in her temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was the power of witchcraft, the power of paganism. It was a hotbed of power of every sort. And Paul writes, he wants us to know God's power that is incomparably great that is over every other part. And what is the power? At the center of it all, he, he then goes on to elaborate, the power is like the working of his mighty strength, verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The power that's available to you and me. The NIV there is a mistranslation, unfortunately, because it says it is like the power that he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's not like it. It is it. <laughs> it is exactly the same power. It's not like some sort of diet version of it. Something you par light. You know, Jesus got the works when he was raised from the dead. He got full power and we're on diet power. You know, power zero, low calorie. We are experiencing the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says you need to know that. 
and it's a work of the Spirit. He says, I can tell you about what it looks like, but you've got to see it yourself. You've got to receive it and understand it, and that is a work of the Holy Spirit. That's why we can stand and we can preach all day about what Jesus has done, but if the Holy Spirit is not invoked in prayer to make it real in people's hearts and lives, nothing happens. Paul wants them to know the power. And as he says this, he's, he's drawing on two passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. And I want you to see them both. I want you to see them in the Bible uh, in case they're places that you don't often go. So can you go to Daniel 7 on your phone or in your Bible or whatever? I want you to see the words on the page. Because these are maybe parts of the Bible that you, you only read once a year or maybe not even. And you're not, therefore, that familiar with them. In Daniel 7... Daniel has a vision. It's an incredible picture. He sees these four ridiculously ugly, terrifying creatures, one by one, coming out of the water. And they represent four kingdoms that oppress the people of God in history. And each one comes up and is uglier and more terrifying and more brutal than the one before it. And Daniel describes these different kingdoms and these different beasts coming out of the water. And it's a really bleak picture. If you're reading it as a Jew and you're thinking, what on earth lies ahead of us? What on earth is going to come with these four beasts that Daniel sees? In verse 9, after he has described them all in some detail, in verse 9 he says, As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Daniel watches as all of these kingdoms rise. And then he sees a throne. And he sees God seated on the throne. And it's almost as if God has been watching as well. It's almost as if God's just checking his, you know, looking at the time. As these, you know, yawning. As these different kingdoms come one after another. You know, are you done? Are you done? Are you okay, your turn. Are you done? And then he just takes his seat. And he rules over all of it. And in verse 13 and 14, you see what happened at the cross. You don't see what's going to happen in the future sometime way off in a thousand years or whenever. You see what happens at the cross. Daniel sees it in verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. This is Jesus. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel sees the cross. He sees the resurrection. He sees the ascension. And whenever Paul writes in Ephesians 1 and says that Jesus has been raised from the dead and seated with God. It doesn't mean he flopped down into the armchair after a hard day's work. He has been enthroned. Paul is saying, you see what you read about in Daniel 7? It has happened. He has taken his seat. He has taken the place of all authority over all powers. It has happened. That's why Jesus, when he's talking to the high priest 
In Matthew 24, there's a, there's a phrase that can confuse people a little bit. Jesus says when he's on trial, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And people then think, well, Jesus told this guy that he was going to see the second coming and then he didn't see it. He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about Daniel 7. He says, when you crucify me, I will be raised from the dead and you're going to be alive and you're going to witness the Son of Man coming on the clouds, taking his seat and being placed over everything in all authority and in all power. You're going to see it. You're going to see it. He's referring to Daniel 7. It's one of those passages you need to just go home and read and just let your imagination go everywhere. And the other passage that that Paul reaches for when he talks about Jesus being seated is Psalm 110 verse 1, quoted over and over again in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for under your feet. And Paul says it's happened. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God and his enemies are being brought into subjection. You may think that you don't need resurrection power. Paul says that this power that's available to us is the power that he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You might be sitting there thinking, well, that's great, but I don't really need that because I am alive. Well, a wee preview for next week's episode, Paul begs to differ. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, you're dead in your sin. And you may think, well, I'm not really that big a sinner. If you're living in rebellion against God and not following Jesus, you need to get real. That's what sin is. So you do need this resurrection power. And verse 21 is wonderfully emphatic. Look at, look at how Paul puts it. He says that Jesus is above all rule and authority. He's above all power. He's above all dominion. He's above every name that is named, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. I can imagine him pausing there, even though he probably didn't, because this is one sentence as well. But I can imagine him pausing after he wrote that verse and thinking, I wonder, have I covered everything? (laughs) Have I covered everything? Is anybody going to sneak in and say, ah, well, I know somebody that Jesus is not over. I know a power that is greater than him. Paul is emphatic. Jesus is above everything. Everything, everything that existed then, exists now, and will ever exist. He is above everything because of his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. And the word that that theologians sometimes use, although we never use it, sometimes they talk about Jesus. When he's seated at the right hand of God, they refer to that as his session. His session. (laughs) can be misunderstood with teenagers today what a session actually is. <laughs> but that's, that's the word that's sometimes used. Paul, and I love doing it as well, he loves speaking emphatically because you can never over-exaggerate about Jesus. And he just heaps up more and more words so that you would get the point that Jesus is above Everything, every power that would threaten you, Jesus is above it. Whether that's depression or despair 
or addictive behavior or an eating disorder or hopelessness or intimidating, threatening people or past satanic activity or negative past experiences, no matter what it is, no matter what power threatens you, I want you to know Jesus is seated above it and all things are under his feet. If you've read Joshua lately, you'll have read that passage about the five kings that were brought out of the cave. And Joshua said to his men, put your feet on their necks. Complete dominion. Complete dominion. All the way back to the garden, whenever the prophecy was given that there would be one who would come who would crush the serpent's head. Paul says, it's happened. Everything is under his feet. Anything that you put under your feet, you don't have much respect for. That's why in some cultures, people throw their shoes at people. Remember a, 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 a press interview for somebody one time, and it was in the news about five years ago. In the middle of it, it was some Arab country. In the middle of it, some dude took off a sandal and chucked it at the guy. That's just a, a sign of contempt. You're under, my, you're under the sole of my shoe. I have utter contempt for you. Jesus has contempt for the things that threaten you. The things that try to rule you and restrain you and hold you back. He is seated above all of them. And whenever God raised Jesus from the dead, he was declaring, I have conquered death and I live forever. That's the resurrection. The session then, the seating on the throne at the right hand of God, by that he has declared he has conquered evil and all the powers and he reigns forever. He lives forever, he reigns forever. And Paul said, I wish you would get it. I pray the Holy Spirit would come into your heart and that you would get it. Because do you know what? If I can convince you of it today, Somebody else can convince you otherwise tomorrow. It's not about convincing. It's not about arguing. It is about declaring and then praying that the Holy Spirit would make you get it. We don't argue people into the kingdom of God. We declare the truth of what Jesus has done and then we say, Holy Spirit, help them to get it. Help them to get it. Make it real in their hearts. And it's extraordinary as well, glancing ahead to next week, we read all about how Jesus here is raised up and is seated in the heavenly places above all powers. And when we get to chapter 2, verse 6, amazingly, we find out that we are with him. We're in him. The only simple illustration I can think of that is that Ruth is pregnant. (laughs) And wherever Ruth goes baby goes. (laughs) We're in Christ. And if he is seated in the heavenly places, and if he is above all power and dominion, and we are in him, then we are seated there too. Do you understand that every demon, every power of hell is under your feet in Christ? Under your feet. Not in your face, going hand to hand with you, it's not, an, it's not an evil, a, a sort of an even battle. Those powers, and you need to take your position in Christ, folks, and believe it. Those powers that torment are under your feet. 
under your feet. So stop allowing them to get on a stepladder. Just picture some ugly wee imp climbing up on a wee stepladder beside you, trying to get to your ear to, to start spitting poison into your ear. Back down you go, under my feet. I am seated in Christ, in victory, and I experience and enjoy the power and the authority that he has. Nothing can rule over you anymore unless you let it. The first half of Ephesians 1 that we did a couple of weeks ago is all about how we are blessed because of his death. Forgiven, redeemed because of his blood. And then this second part of the chapter is all about how we are empowered because of his resurrection. How do we make this known to the world? And with this I close. How do we tell people about this? How is this going to get out there? The last couple of verses of Ephesians 1 say that God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now there's a lot packed in there and I'm going to go to the message and let you read it out of the message or I'll read it to you. Eugene Peterson, who who wrote the message translation, passed away on Monday, aged 85. He he was just a shepherd teacher extraordinaire and a message came through or an email came through just from a reading list that I'm part of or an email list and there's part part of it was was from his family and this is going off piste here a wee bit but you need to know this this, this was a man incredible man um, I remember a a story that he told and I'll have time to tell you it, so I'll tell you it. He, uh, he, he was working in Regent College in Vancouver, and he was working on the message translation. And at that time, he was working on Isaiah, and just consumed and obsessed with Isaiah and, and writing the, the message translation of Isaiah. And you two were in town playing a gig in Vancouver. And Bono contacted him and said, I want to meet you for coffee because Bono had you know, read the, some of the message versions that Eugene Peterson had already produced and he contacted him and said, you know, can we, can we meet? Can we get dinner together? And uh, Eugene sent a message back and said, no. <laughs> he said, I don't, I don't really have time on my schedule right now. And uh, one of the students then was talking to him and, and Eugene told, told the student about this. And the student looked at him and said, but Eugene, it was Bono. And Eugene Peterson said to him, but it was Isaiah. (laughs) The guy was so obsessed with the word and he just like, okay, world superstar, whatever. I'll see you next time you're here. I'm I'm busy. (laughs) I'm busy in the word. But as he was in his final moments, his his family wrote about, he he was talking a lot. He wasn't talking to them. They didn't know who he was talking to, but he was talking. And he had dementia and they weren't sure sometimes what, what was going on, but they could hear him talking. And they could hear him praying. And they could discern at times that he was praying in tongues. And then just before the end, he said, let's go. I thought that was class. <laughs> he said, let's go. Wonderful. Wouldn't it be good to end well? Wouldn't it be good to finish strong? But Eugene Peterson wrote these verses like this. 
He said at the center of all this, talking about all this power, all this incredible power that's in Christ and available to us. He said at the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. How will we make this power known to the world? Is only through the church. I want to tell you something and don't misunderstand me. You cannot fully experience Jesus apart from the local church. Don't misunderstand that to think that is some sort of manipulative, controlling. It's, it's nothing to do with leadership. It's nothing to do with control over people's lives. Jesus has ordained it that his fullness is revealed to the world through the church. And it is only through the church that we fully encounter him. So we need to be careful about getting lots of money and hiring the biggest venue and bringing the best band in the world and bringing the best evangelistic speaker in the world and putting on a big show because that's not really the church. Lives can be affected by that. But Jesus has said, I will reveal my fullness through the church. That's why sitting down with a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning is important. It's the church. Being together, knowing each other is important. Hearing the word together, singing together his praises. We are being the church. And if somebody walks in who has never been in before, there's a better chance, I believe, of them encountering the fullness of Jesus in a gathering of 30 or 40 people just doing church and life. There's a better chance that they'll get a clearer picture of Jesus there than they will at the massive event that costs thousands to put on. You cannot fully experience Jesus without the local church. You need to be plugged into the local church. And that has a flip side as well. If we're going to bring this gospel to the world, the best way to do it is to plant churches. The more, the better. And it's time this conversation started becoming more a part of our regular conversation. I was really refreshed last week talking to a guy from Manchester who's part of a multi-site church in Manchester. Six different gatherings in five different locations. Chatting to him just a wee bit about it, how it works. And then you sort of, you're, you're nervously waiting for that devastating moment when numbers come into the conversation. Because I've read so many books and listened to so many people and you hear them say, oh yeah, we have 500 at our South City campus and we have 800 at our Western campus and at our main site there are 2,500. And I was listening to this guy and so we, we, we got to the point that he was, he was talking about the, 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 the site that he leads. And they meet in the upstairs of a vodka bar on a Sunday night. <laughs> For 20 quid they rent this room. And that all-important moment, it's not that important, but whenever the numbers come out, and he says, there's about 30 of us. And I thought, hallelujah. I thought, that's class. And I said, how, how many are in the main site, the sort of the, the mother ship? Um, how, how many are there? Expecting to say, oh, there are about, you know, 150 million, you know, people. He said, no. he said there's, there's about 30 people there as well. 
And you know what? I was so I just find it so refreshing. And I thought, yeah, this is it. Little groups all over the place. I don't know if you remember one morning over there, I said that I felt the Holy Spirit was just putting a question on me. Would you rather have one gathering of 500 people or 10 gatherings of 50 people dotted all over little towns and villages? Which is going to have more impact for the kingdom? Which is going to show people the fullness of Jesus? Which is going to give people an opportunity to come in and say, by this I know that you are his disciples because you love each other. The massive operation or lots of little pockets. If people are going to know this power, they're going to know it in the context of the local church and we need to plant churches. The more, the merrier. And we have to have a posture that if someone was to show up and take that unit over there and plant a new church, we would be doing somersaults for joy instead of saying, what are you doing here? The more, the better. And I was talking yesterday with a friend Yesterday was golden time, you know, and kids in school get a wee bit of free time and they have golden time. I had golden time yesterday sitting in a hotel in Antrim over coffee just talking to a friend. And I said to him, I said, we have a disproportionate number of leaders in our church. I said to Linda the other night, I was thinking about it as well, I said, when I look out here, I see leaders. I see leaders. And some of you need to stop thinking that you can't do what you know he's starting to poke you about. Because we need church planters. And we need to start equipping people and raising them up because the world is not going to know the fullness of who Jesus is without churches all over the place. And you need to stop thinking that you're unqualified or you're uneducated or you're not skilled enough to do it because you're looking at the most unqualified, inadequate, weak person. But God has this mischievous sense of humor where he likes to pick people like that. He really does. So that he gets the glory. But I would love some of you to start over, over coffee that maybe later on you're maybe at home and some of you that are chatting with friends or chatting with your spouse and you might just say, do you know what? Do you think he's poking us about that? Because if we have to wait for everybody to get professionally qualified in order to go out and lead and start new things, the Great Commission will never, ever, ever, ever be fulfilled because it'll take so long to get people ready. I want the world to know Jesus. I don't believe they can know Jesus outside the context of the local church, and I don't believe there are enough churches. So let's bring this into our conversation. Let's bring this into our prayers on Tuesday nights and on Sunday night, if, if we're here tonight, bring that into our praying. Bring it into your private praying. Bring it into your conversations. Get excited about it. Get excited about it. Because this is how the world will know Jesus and know the power that we've talked about. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that through, through your wisdom, somehow you decided that you would show forth the fullness of who Jesus is through the church. 
that the power that raised him from the dead would work in us to show this world all of his beauty and all of his character. And at times past, many people have dropped the ball, Father. And at times past, I have dropped the ball. Times past, I've taken my eyes off the game, Lord. But Father, you're gracious. You're gracious, Lord. And you're the God of second chances and third chances and so on and so on. Lord, I pray you would awaken within us the realization that this world can only encounter Jesus through your church. And there just ain't enough churches. So Lord, will you use us? Will you give us wisdom, Father? Will you plant little seeds of dreams in the lives and in the hearts of people here even this morning? Awaken, Lord. Awaken, Lord. And I pray, Father, for everyone, including myself, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we would know you better, that we would know the hope to which you have called us, that we would know the, in, the inheritance, the riches, the glorious riches of the inheritance that we have in your people, and that we would know that power. And Father, that as Jesus has taken his place, we would know our place. Seated in him, enthroned with him, with every one of those nyattery little voices that tries to poison us and hold us back under our feet. In the name of Jesus. Thank you for victory, Lord. Thank you for victory, Lord. Write this truth deep in our hearts. Once again this morning, Father, this people have heard a lot a lot to process, a lot packed into six or eight verses. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and do your work now in the hearts of people to bring understanding in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen.